Hello and welcome to the Free Movement Podcast. I'm CJ McKinney. People being persecuted because of their sexual orientation can claim asylum in the UK, but how do you prove to a civil servant that you are in fact gay, lesbian or bisexual, and is the Home Office set up to make the right decisions in this area? Joining me for this episode are Catherine Soroya, a senior caseworker at Turpin Miller Solicitors, and Alan Brillick, a barrister at One Pump Court Chambers. Catherine, I have checked the text of the UN Refugee Convention, and it doesn't say anything about gay, lesbian, or bisexual people in there. So how come they can get refugee status in the UK or anywhere else in the world for that matter? Yeah, you're exactly right. So the Refugee Convention doesn't explicitly refer to gay, lesbian or bisexual people, uh, whereas it does refer to other categories of people, for example, race or religion. Um, What the Refugee Convention does mention is that people capable of forming a particular social group are able to claim asylum. And the definition of a particular social group is a group of people who have um, an innate characteristic or something that's so fundamental to their identity that they can't be expected to renounce it or to hide it. Um, And that's something that in the UK has long been accepted by case law and European directives and, and UN guidance. So someone can claim asylum in the UK Um, based on their sexual identity if they fear persecution. But even if you're from a country where uh, gay, lesbian and bisexual people are persecuted, you you can't just rock up to the Home Office and assert that you are gay. You're going to have to prove your sexual orientation in some way. Presumably that's quite hard to get independent, verifiable evidence of your sexual orientation. You're not sort of issued with a certificate that you can show people. Yeah, exactly. So um, all asylum seekers have to prove their case to some degree. Uh, It doesn't matter the type of claim um, and and the level of proof they have to meet is to a reasonable degree of likelihood so that it's it's reasonably likely that their account is, is accurate. The problem with sexual identity and proving that is is that it's such a a personal experience and it has many different iterations um, and it's not always something that people can put words to. So when you have a claim that's based on something perhaps more concrete like a political opinion, you can show concrete evidence of membership of a political party, for example. However, with sexual identity, it's not necessarily something that you can provide concrete evidence for. So we kind of run into problems in the decision making process. And I think we're going to discuss them more. Yeah, I mean, if you did have concrete evidence, like you had pictures of yourself taking part in a local pride parade, for example, presumably that would help your case. You wouldn't necessarily need to go into your kind of personal experiences. So in some cases, based on sexual orientation, there there is concrete evidence you can rely on. For example, if you're in a relationship and your partner can provide a statement about that, or if you're an activist and you attend um, LGBTQ um, plus events, for example, but not everyone is an activist and not everyone is in a relationship. So it does rely to a certain degree on people's narrative. And even if you do have that type of evidence, it's still going to be uh, a lot of weight is still going to be placed on what you say and your narrative and your account of your own sexual identity. Okay, and so the Home Office has some official guidance specifically on this issue of the narrative and how to judge what people say about their sexual orientation. 
So what kind of things does the guidance say that the caseworkers are looking for from that narrative? Yeah, so one of the main things the guidance is looking for is to see um, three different things in someone's narrative. So they're looking for shame, stigma and difference. If we talk about shame, what they mean is evidence that someone has been told or feels that their sexual identity is sinful or immoral. So they'll be looking for language that reflects that um, when someone presents their evidence at interview or in their statements. When we talk about stigma, that's evidence of something like discrimination that someone's experienced in their country. So harassment, bullying or worse. Um, Of course, some people won't have lived as openly gay in their country. So that's going to be quite hard to demonstrate. And then the last one, which I find really problematic, is about difference. Um, And the Home Office want to see reflected in someone's narrative that they feel different because of their sexual identity. And that's a real problem for some people. For example, if you have a woman that's extremely proud of her lesbian identity and doesn't feel different and states in their interview that she feels normal, Um, and no different to anyone else, that's not going to fit neatly in the descriptive characters, you know, characteristics that the Home Office are looking to see. But generally, that's what they want to see, shame, stigma and difference. Okay, so there's there's these preconceived notions almost of what the narrative should contain. And you wrote a piece for us recently on the website about this, and you mentioned they're also looking for this uh, for an emotional journey, people sort of journey of discovery about themselves. Can you tell me a little bit about that? This is another thing that comes out of the internal guidance that the, the caseworkers at the Home Office are using. And what they're looking for reflected in someone's account is um, what they call a journey of painful self-discovery. And you can get lots of problematic assumptions kind of flowing from that statement. But in my experience and in my practice, what I've seen is that they're looking for some sort of narrative that shows an emotional journey to realisation of your sexual identity. And that kind of presupposes that someone's going to have a really neat chronological um, explanation of how they realise their sexual identity um, and that they're going to be emotional in the retelling of that. And it's kind of problematic to assume that someone will be emotional because you may inherently not be an emotional person or you may have experienced past persecution. That means that you've not, you don't feel comfortable expressing um, your sexual identity to a stranger in a home office interview. Alan, you're quite critical of the Home Office approach to these cases, and I'm starting to get a sense from Catherine already of why that might be. But what are your criticisms of this uh, guidance and this whole approach? As a very starting point, these the the uh, and as a guide, there's nothing necessarily wrong with these points if they are very much treated as a guide that some people may have an emotional journey and some people may have shame, etc., but it's not applied like that across the board, and that's not unique to the UK. So you, what you see, unfortunately, because the guidance, the guidance itself actually is probably okay. The guidance is quite clear that you should not be uh, applying a, a one-size-fits-all approach to LGBTQI uh, refugees. But in practice, they do that. So as Catherine was describing you know, with, for example, with the emotional journey, um, not everyone has that emotional journey for the reasons that Catherine described. People sometimes, they don't actually realize their sexuality. 
Sexuality has got very different meanings in different parts of the world. There are some parts of the world there isn't really the concept of being gay. Um, so when they're asked in the UK, when did you first realize that you were gay or lesbian or bisexual? The person doesn't really understand that. So they may have had an attraction to a person of the same sex, um, uh, but they don't really understand that that's what the question is about. And the Home Office, they also expect what I call a eureka moment. So they they expect a, a time and a place when suddenly uh, the person realized that they were gay, lesbian or bisexual. And if they can't give that exact time, they say, well, well, that couldn't be right because it was such an important part of your journey. You must remember it. So it's the way it's applied uh, as a one size fits all judged by the individual who's making the decision, which turns out to be very problematic in, in, in refugee cases. So the guidance is all right, but what you're saying is caseworkers, they read it, they say, right, I need to see stigma, shame, emotional journey. And if this person I'm interviewing uh, doesn't tick those boxes, then they can't be gay or lesbian. Nearly every single case um, that I see, a refusal rather, based on sexuality um, has those elements to it and has the elements of you haven't expressed this emotional journey and therefore we don't believe you. One thing that the Home Office do as well is that they they seem to kind of like discount any sexuality that doesn't also come with emotions. So if a individual is asked, you know, why they were attracted to boy or girl X when they were 15 in school. And um, if they say they had nice eyes and I liked, they were confident and they were nice to me or, you know, or they had something physical, um, the home office will say, well, what's the emotional attachment? And maybe they just found them attractive and there wasn't any emotional attachment. So there's this extra layer of expecting every single sexual attraction to come with some huge emotion that's behind it. Yeah, the expectation that it's romantic, it's a romantic attraction. Yeah, I've totally seen that as well. Yeah, exactly. That's actually in a nutshell. They expect every kind of sexual attraction to be romantic. And like, you know, that's not the way the world works for anybody. Is it mostly the this business of not being on a journey that they give us the reason for not believing someone's sexual orientation? Or are there other uh, reasons that tend to be given? Yeah, there, there very often will be a number of reasons. Um, that always forms the emotional journey, including what Catherine was describing about the shame, etc. All of those, so if you include that in the emotional journey, that does tend to form the absolute centerpiece of the reason. Then there'll be other reasons as well. Uh, the rainbow migration, when they were known as UK LGIG, did a report still falling short a few years ago, and they identified a number of areas and i still see those now so for risk for example they say we don't believe you because you took a risk um religion is another one so they frequently expect the individual to have a extraordinary introspection into how their religion treats homosexuality um and why they are okay with that and how they've managed to come to terms with it and if the person says that they still practice their religion then unless they give some sort of a theological explanation of a detailed understanding of whatever holy book the person might adhere to. And then they're saying, well, we don't believe you. Yeah, a lot of hurdles in people's way. Uh, Catherine, is this your experience as well? 
Yeah, I mean, this is totally my experience in the refusals that I've read. This um, reference to a lack of emotion when they should be emotional. And if you think about the nature of claiming asylum, quite often someone has been through persecution already um, and they may have been through something extremely traumatic. And a defence mechanism for some people is to detach from their experiences. So if they're then put in a room with an interviewer that they don't know and they're asked questions about things they've been forced to detach themselves from or not think about due to what horrible experiences they've been through, they can come across as some of the least emotional people. And often you see refusals um, based on that. So you'll need something like psych psychological evidence about trauma maybe to support the fact that um, someone's account is genuine. And, and also what Alan was saying about um, there having to be a eureka moment one point in your life where you realise that you're gay or a lesbian or bisexual, in reality, that's not necessarily how it works. People have lots of different scattered ideas um, and feelings and emotions about when they realise their sexual identity. It's part of a, a development. It's not linear. Um, and it's really personal and in, in, innate to that person. Um, so I've seen refusals based on the idea that someone realised they were gay at three separate times. And how is that possible? But really, that person was just trying to articulate uh, through different times in their life these are the feelings that I felt a lot of decisions are based on the decision maker I think and their internal bias and perhaps not um, using the guidance appropriately or properly but if we take a step back for a moment the reason that we have these questions and this guidance and there's some kind of filtering process is because the home office will say some people will claim that they're gay when they're not in order to get asylum. Is it a big problem in reality? Are there people in your experience who will chance their arms on a, a LGBTQ asylum claim? Well, I don't think it's possible to say that it it's never happened and it will never happen. Um, but in my experience, the majority of clients I work with find the process so difficult and exhausting and painful and they're really fighting to get their story and account accepted that I think it would be hard to say that they're just doing it for some immigration status. The types of questions they're subjected to, the decision making, the appeal process, it's really traumatic for some people um, and I think you'd really be hard pushed to say that that they were just doing it to see if they could get immigration status but I don't know what Alan thinks about that whether you've got any thoughts. No I, I totally agree um, I've never really seen any evidence of that the Home Office haven't said there's a problem with it it obviously does happen as Catherine says and that's the process of the of the courts to try and find that out I think someone claiming uh, refugee status on the basis of sexuality would really struggle to get through their claim if they weren't genuine. Speaking of the courts, if someone is not believed about their sexual orientation uh, by the Home Office, they can appeal. Uh, Alan, you would handle such appeals. Are judges better informed about these matters than the Home Office or are they looking for the emotional journey and the stigma and, and all the rest of it? How does it go in the immigration tribunal? They are better informed generally, and it does tend to be a better process. It's, it, it's, it can still happen. It can still happen. There's no question that judges can look for emotional journey. I see that, that, that many times. Um, so it's probably better before a judge. You don't tend to get quite the level of, well, you didn't tell us when you were 13 that you did 
X or you felt X or something like that. So you don't quite get that. It's more judged on the evidence that that's actually before the the tribunal. So it is better, but it's there's still some problems. Um, you know, you still get even to today, you still get absolutely uh, diabolical stereotyping about lesbian, gay, bisexual people. Yeah, there was one case we reported a couple of years ago where the judge said that the chap in front of him couldn't be gay because he didn't seem, quote unquote, effeminate. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, and there are quite a lot of examples of that. Um, You know, we did with a group of other people, we did kind of start to collate some of those from Twitter and and other sources. And there there are quite a lot. I think um, one of the most famous ones was, that, well, one of the most outrageous ones, infamous ones, was uh, posted by Julian Norman a couple of few years back now, and um, she was saying that um, that she wasn't saying she posted a part of a determination that talked about the the appellant's um, appearance as being uh, not very mannish. And in any event, she knew she was coming to an appeal and she may have made her appearance more mannish. And apparently because she wore makeup, um, that made her less mannish and then less likely to be a lesbian. So, you know, that's a real thing. And that's a fairly extreme example. But you do see you still see them. However, I think both the Home Office and the judges are a bit more savvy not to quite go down those routes these days. Um, But I think there is a lot more subtle stereotyping that's happening. With what we've described, the stereotyping that gay people and lesbian, bisexual people will have this emotional journey, um, will arrive in the UK and rush down Old Compton Street with a rainbow flag wrapped around their head. You've got this more, it's subtle, but it's still stereotyping. It's still happening on a grand scale. You mentioned rainbow migration. They released that report in 2014 or 15 that you mentioned. They released another one in 2018 saying that things had improved when it comes to decision-making on these claims. Um, room for further improvement, but there, that there had been progress. Since then, in 2019 and 2020, the success rate of asylum claims based on sexual orientation has been much higher than in previous years, 45 50% according to the best available numbers, which aren't perhaps perfect. Is the decision-making getting better, do you think? Yeah, I have seen um, there are definitely some cases decided straight away um, asylum is granted and their story is accepted. Um, But usually those are people that have really strong evidence of activism. Well, that's my experience. They can show they've been an active member of an LGBTQ organisation and they've been on lots of marches and they've been campaigning. So they've really lots of evidence outside of their own description of their sexual identity. I've seen a lot of really bad refusals, like we've spoken about, um, where I can't quite believe that it's being refused for the reasons that it says. And they still astound me. Uh, So from my point of view, I feel like the decision making is pretty bad. But I am just a baby lawyer, so I didn't see what the decisions were like several years ago. And so I don't know if they've improved at all. But for me, they still seem really based on a lot of internal bias of the decision maker. Yeah, well, it will not get carried away with our optimism. You said in your article about this that people who are applying for asylum on this basis, they should really focus on their emotional journey. If they have one, they should you know, talk about how they came to realize their sexuality and so on. 
So even though this uh, the approach to the Home Office is highly problematic for all the reasons we've given, your advice would seem to be, well, look, you've kind of got to play the game and be pragmatic and give the Home Office what they want if you've got that in your story. Yeah. So firstly, with those caveats that I've already spoken about, that I find it quite a problematic concept, I do think we have to be pragmatic. Um, however, my first piece of advice isn't to clients isn't, you know, what's your journey? Um, it's always just to be as open, as honest and, and truthful in their account as they can be, because we can probably go a lot further with that. I'm not asking them to give me an emotional journey straight away. I think part of my job is to be able to help them present their case in a way that's accessible to the home office. And if what the home office is looking for in their guidance is this framework around a journey um, my job is to help prompt clients think about pointers in their lives that might equate to things you could call markers in an emotional journey so I will prompt clients about things like that but yeah the first piece of advice is always just to be as open and honest and and also bearing in mind the guidance is just that it should be just guidance so if someone doesn't have an emotional journey that you know reflects what the home office want that doesn't mean we shouldn't present their claim or there's not merit in an ideal world uh, if you were in charge of the home office tomorrow how would decision makers approach this whole area of sexual orientation well in my ideal world we wouldn't be assessing people's sexual identity full stop Um, but if we are going to then we need to kind of eradicate the heteronormativity of decision makers Um, I think the thing that causes clients the most pain from what I've seen is the questions that they're asked at interview um, and the the statements relied on in decisions. And in both of those cases and points in the process, it seems to be based on the individual caseworker and their internal biases. Um, So I think we would have to introduce some sort of real stringent internal bias training or rigorous training process, um, which eliminates some of that um, reliance on old stereotypes in the way we ask questions um, and the way we rely on um, stereotypes to make decisions. So I think something about rigorous training would be really important. Better training. Okay, Alan, uh, last word to you. How would you uh, change the system? You know, the way Catherine described how she prepares her cases is how I change the system. So you sit down with the with the individual and ask them, you know, why they're claiming asylum. You start off believing them uh, unless there's reasons to disbelieve them. Um, you apply the lower standard of proof. Uh, you don't uh, apply the, 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 the one size fits all and all LGBT people are the same like in any other asylum claim, just believe the person unless there's a reason not to disbelieve them. Might be a simplistic way of saying it, but not the other way around of disbelieving them until they can absolutely prove to some huge high standard of proof that they actually are a lesbian, gay or bisexual person. Well, that seems like a good place to leave it. Thank you very much, both of you, for coming on. Catherine Soroya from Turpin Miller and Alan Briddick from One Pump Court. This has been the Free Movement Podcast. Check out the website for much more on asylum and immigration issues and consider subscribing to access the full range of materials www.freemovement.org.uk forward slash join. I'm CJ McKinney. I'll be back on the podcast for the usual monthly roundup with Colin Yeo on the 12th of November. Until then, thanks for listening.